My very favorite store in the entire world is the container store. <laughs> you all been there, the container store? Yeah. yeah. Right. So great, isn't it? It is everything that the name promises, which actually isn't that much when you think about it, but <clears throat> containers for anything and everything you might want. Even the motto, which you can see on their bags, contain yourself. Yes, it sounds so organized. Contain yourself. I have loved containers since I was a little girl. My parents can still tell the stories of the many household items essentially permanently lost because I organized them into little tiny boxes inside little bags, inside closets, or in the back of drawers. And my favorite game growing up was Librarian, where I cataloged all my books. My mother, perhaps mistakenly, gave me a date stamp, and so I created my own card catalog system for the books. And then I would sit there, checking them out, although I'm an only child, so I didn't know who I was checking them out to, but... It was so nice and neat, those books, once they were organized that well. I like to get everything in my life like that, you know, kind of all set, all organized, perfectly lined up in little rows. It's just how my craft room should be. I have a craft room in my basement. It was supposed to be my study, but I don't know, crafting sounded more important. <clears throat> and so I have, I have lovely shelves and, and little containers and, um, and a label maker. And I think about how my craft room should look. In fact, every single day off that I have, I plan that I will spend a portion of that day, I think it should take me what, about 20 minutes probably, to organize the entirety of my craft room and put labels on every single piece. I think like the bookshelves should have a label all the way along, you know, this is where the blue beads are, and here's where you put red feathers, which would be in this section of the bookshelf. Everything's going to be neat and color-coded and just perfect. Obviously, if I get to that point, my children will not be allowed to use the craft room because they would mess it up. Probably I shouldn't really use it either. I mean, once you have everything all settled, you really don't want to move the red feathers because they might get mixed up with the blue beads. But boy, would it look great. Here is an alternate title to this platform address. Life is like a craft room. If it's too neat and perfect, you can't really use it, and you certainly won't make anything amazing inside it. This is true for personal life. And boy, I'll tell you, it is a lesson I continue to learn. When I was about 18 years old, I asked my parents to buy me a watch. I needed a new watch. It's not a totally uncommon occurrence in a person's life. And I found a watch that I just really loved. But it was expensive, particularly for an 18-year-old. It was beyond my budget. And so I told my parents that if they just bought me this watch... I would never want another watch for my entire life. This would be the final watch of Amanda's life. I'm wearing it, I would just like to say, right? I was just going to my word. It's the last watch. 
My mother told me later that my father had had to get to a sort of spiritual place of being okay with me losing the watch, which apparently they both assumed I was going to do, which I'm a little offended by, but anyway. And I think so often, wouldn't that be nice if everything in life were like watches? And, you know, you could get the final one, and then you'd never have to get another one again. I have tried this with a number of clothing items, actually, because I like wearing nice things, but I don't really like having to bother to procure them all the time and replace them. It turns out shoes, unlike watches, only last a few years if you wear them every day because you have decided that they are your final black pumps. And then you have to get new ones, and the manufacturer changed it slightly, and so the leather's not as good, and, you know, it's a mess. Growth and change are hard. It's so tempting to decide that we're done with that, or at least done with certain categories. My final house, done, you know, they'll carry me out feet first. My final job, my final purse. I tried that, too. Purses are better than shoes, it turns out, not as good as watches. When I got married, I remember thinking very clearly that I was so glad I wasn't going to have to deal with dating anymore, with that whole scene, you know, with new relationships and relationships that don't really work out. I thought to myself, oh, finally, I'm getting married. I can just check that little box, love, off my list. Well, woe to she who gets married and checks love off her list. (laughs) Marriage, like all of life, is under construction, always evolving, and so are we as human beings in all aspects of our lives, sometimes dramatically and sometimes in much smaller ways. I think about this sometimes as somebody who is um, now... Well, really, it's almost two years since my last pregnancy, but um, I still consider myself post-pregnancy. Really, I think I'll keep that up for a little while. And that's a hard thing for folks, I think, as their bodies change under construction so dramatically. You know, during pregnancy, first you have an alien actually changing your body from the inside out in a major under-construction moment. And then afterwards, your body doesn't quite do the same things. It doesn't quite look exactly the same way. And that can be hard, I think, to, to imagine, well, when am I going to get back to my, my real body, my, my final body, you know, the one I picked out when I was 18 <laughs> with the watch? I read an article recently, which I just loved. You may have seen it. It's made the rounds on Facebook. It was a, a reflection, really, a blog, maybe, written by a woman who finally realized that she wanted to be in her family's pictures. For years, she had decided that she, was, she just didn't look right. She was too heavy or her hair wasn't right or the glasses weren't the ones she really wanted. And so she would take pictures of her family, of her children and her spouse, but she didn't want to be in those pictures, not until she was done, you know, with the construction on herself, not until she was at that final state she was shooting for. And finally, you know, looking back over this lifetime of pictures, she realized that she deserved to be in those pictures too. No matter what state of construction she was in, no matter what she looked like, that she deserved to be in the snapshot. Many folks who are in that place of their bodies being under construction, which FYI is all of us, because that's 
how it works, you know, your body changes and rebuilds, grows and shrinks, all the things that bodies do over time. So many of us, I think, wait to get in the picture, wait to, to buy beautiful clothes we enjoy, or, or wait to feel happy with ourselves until we reach some other final moment. How liberating to imagine that we should be in the picture in the meantime, which is all the time. It makes me think of another way to look at that under-construction in our personal lives. The idea that, that since we're always changing anyway, always morphing, we should just engage with it somehow. You know, we should kind of get with the program. There was another article I read uh, a couple of years ago about a woman who did an, an incredible amount of really amazing medical work serving kind of underserved populations. She was a doctor and worked in a clinic, and she did all of that work in the second half of her life. And she talked about the, the decision to go back to medical school years after another career. She was in her 40s, I think, when she decided to go to medical school. And people said to her, well, that's crazy. You know, I mean, it's eight years, and then you have an internship, and then you have a residency. You know, you're going to be 50 before you're a doctor. Everybody else is in their 20s. And she said, well, I'm going to be 50 anyway. I might as well be 50 and a doctor. And I love, then, the way she built this whole life, this whole new chapter of her life under construction, the way she reimagined what it might look like. There is no perfect time, you know, for these decisions in our personal lives. It makes me think sometimes of, of couples that will talk about how they're trying to find the the time when they're ready to be parents. They're not sure it's quite yet. It might be like next November. They might be <laughs> definitely ready then, or maybe it's the following February. They'll certainly have it all under control. <laughs> you know, we need instead to learn how to grab at life in those moments when it's under construction, to realize there is no final pair of shoes. It's true, too, for our justice work, I think, not just for our personal lives, but for the way that we, that we live those personal lives in our work in the world. Mary mentioned tonight that the membership meeting will include a vote on whether Wes wants to become a welcoming congregation. That's a, that's a certification that's offered by the Unitarian Universalist Association where a congregation chooses to kind of publicly affirm that it is intentionally welcoming and inclusive of and supporting and working for the rights of folks in the LGBTQ community, or as we sometimes say at West, in the quilt bag community, kind of a, a, an acronym that includes even more folks. And, um, and so Wes has done a series of things to get us ready for this vote. You know, we've, we've had workshops and film festivals, and we've reflected on the work that we've done over many years here in this community and the ways that this feels so much like part of ourselves. But we've continued our education, and now we're ready, you know, for the vote tonight about that. And hopefully a positive vote will come tonight, and we will indeed declare ourselves officially as a welcoming congregation, capital W, capital C. And we'll be done with that stretch of the work, right? You know, as welcoming as we could possibly be. <laughs> of course, on another level, there's no way we'll be done tonight with a vote. 
it's sometimes hard, I think it certainly is for me, to realize that you don't know everything, especially about an issue that you passionately support. I have a whole image of myself as a straight ally who's just really up on on everything, you know, so that I can support the quilt bag community, you know, that I, I listen well and I learn well and I read things and I know what I'm doing. I gave a platform here at Wes a few years ago, actually, probably about four years ago now, on gender. And I was talking about the binary gender dynamic and, and, um, and folks who are trans or genderqueer and, and kind of cracking that open a little bit and, and cracking open the idea of gender. And I thought I was really pretty cool, <laughs> you know. Woo, talking about gender queer stuff, binary gender dynamic. I learned that whole phrase. I knew how to say it. <laughs> During the comments, the sort of community sharing portion of that platform, a West member stood up and said, and I'm so grateful to his deeply gentle way, that he introduced me and the community to a word that was totally new to me, cisgender. I'm going to tell you what it means in a minute if you didn't take that workshop in the welcoming congregation setup. But cisgender, he said, he, he explained the term, and I thought to myself, oh my God, I should have known about cisgender for this platform. <laughs> and then I thought, no, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. That's awesome. That's what this is about. I'm learning. And so for the next year and a half, I felt pretty smart. I knew the term cisgender now. And then I learned, I learned it backward. <laughs> I thought cisgender was... I guess I thought it was like transgender. I, I guess I forgot that I took Latin, honestly. Trans is a cross, right? It means when you, when you change genders, when you, when you, if you think about, a, about two genders, if you switch, if you think about multi, multi-gendered approach, when you change genders. So cis means same. So if you're cisgender, it means that you currently present a gender identity that is the same to the, the one you were assigned at birth. So I'm cisgender. When I was born, everybody said, oh, it's a girl, and... That's what they would still say when they see me. So for a year and a half, I used cisgender in the opposite way that I was supposed to be using it. Hopefully, people did not seem really totally confused. Um, They were certainly uh, nice, I guess, if they noticed. So I'm learning still. That's a process under construction. I continue to learn, too, about intersectionality, you know, the ways that justice and injustice intersect with each other, the way that you think about classism and racism, which are really intertwined in so many ways in America and intersect with each other, although they're not the same thing, and then how those two things intersect with ageism or with ableism or with heterosexism, all the ways that our justice work influences each other, that when you scratch the surface of one, you find another injustice right underneath it and connected to it. It's true, I think, that we're never going to be done learning about injustice or done working for justice, working for welcome and for inclusion. And that part of that work is continuing our own education, continuing to being open to learning new words and then later learning that we learned them wrong and practicing them again until we get it right. And then there'll be a new word that comes along. So we should learn that too. If you're wondering how we'll make sure in this congregation that we keep doing that work, how we'll make sure that the vote tonight is not the end 
of all of our learning on welcoming and inclusion. I'm happy to tell you that the Unitarian Universalist Association offers, I just saw a note about this, a program on renewing your welcoming congregation status. So in a couple of years, when we're all, you know, talking about being cisgender or not all over the place, and we start every go-round by inviting people to identify their preferred pronouns, that would be awesome. That happens in youth gatherings a lot uh, within the LGBTQ community, really inviting people to present with their identity. When, we, when we're on there, then we'll be ready for version whatever it is, 2.0 or 3.0, so... Stay tuned. It's true, too, in congregational life and in governance. There's another big vote tonight about the Constitution. Now, it's unusual, actually, I think, that constitutions or kind of congregational governing documents find their way into a Sunday morning platform. We usually go for slightly more inspiring stuff, and although I think our Constitution is lovely, you might not read it aloud, you know, all the way through as a liturgical item, quite exactly. Some people might read it aloud as a liturgical item, I don't know. There's a history of Wes's Constitution, which was originally written really at our founding in the 1940s, in 1944, and in some ways, I think it's been under construction for years, although the document hasn't really changed. We've just been doing something different than the document says to do, because we've been under construction, because the who we are now doesn't look like it looked, certainly, in 1944. Our numbers have grown, and the people involved has changed, and congregational thinking has changed. And so we've done all sorts of things you know, that our Constitution didn't exactly provide for. And so in some ways, what's happening tonight with that constitutional vote is, is catching the, the documents up to our practice. And then, you know, we'll be done, I'm sure. <laughs> Do you think? Of course not. You know, static documents, I think, are indicative of a static organization. Change is messy, it takes time and attention and flexibility. It's tempting, I think, when you look at something like the Constitution, which you might or might not have you know, memorized and keep at home as a bedside reading, to say, on the one hand, that the document is, is, is static, should be static, and can't be changed, or to say, on the other hand, that if it's going to change more later anyway, we should wait until we finally know exactly what we're going to do and hold off till that moment. But even the changes, even the finality, even the votes continue to be under construction, you know, just like our lives. And, and the changes being proposed have already had their own changes and amendments in the last year. Some of you who have been members for at least a year might remember our statement of purpose revision process. Oh. Carl remembers our statement of purpose revision process. Well, it was it was, it was democratic. It was democratic. It was. It involved voices from all over the community as we tried to craft a statement of purpose, a new revised statement of purpose that felt like us you know, that felt like who we were and what we wanted to say. And there are 300 of us, so we wanted to say it 300 different ways, all distinct from each other, or at least one word was different, or there was a semicolon, which we felt really passionate about. <laughs> and so when it came to a vote the first time at a congregational meeting, 
the, the percentage for passage of a new statement of purpose was at 90%. We needed 90% of us to think that these were the exact perfect words and semicolons for the statement of purpose to go forward. I think we got 87%. And then we thought, we might need to change something here. We might be under construction. And so it came back and more people thought and more people were involved and we decided that maybe actually 80% was a good amount. That was a lot of people. That was most of us. And so we changed it to 80% and then we passed the statement of purpose and You know, it was a lot of flexibility that was required, a lot of change, a lot of under construction. And yet here we are with the new statement of purpose, which we read on Sunday mornings and which sits there on our wall and on our programs. And it does feel like us, semicolon aside. And I think one reason that that statement of purpose was so hard for us to alter was it had been the same for roughly 25 years, I think. That's the history that I was told. And now, thanks to the new Constitution, it will be considered, at least might not be changed, but it will be considered every five years. There is no final statement of purpose. More like shoes, you know. It should be easy in some ways for religious liberals, I think. After all, we are here in a religious and a philosophical tradition where we're always making things up. We're making up how we engage with morality and with ethics. We're reinterpreting texts all over the place. In fact, if somebody said that this is the way it was supposed to be, we're likely to disagree with them. Just, you know, on principle. But sometimes I think when all of those pieces are so wide open, our ethics and our theology and our philosophy, sometimes then it's even harder for us to change the structures, the things that stay static. The Constitution from 1944. They must have had a a good thing going, those founding Wests. They were fathers, mostly, I'm sorry to say. Well, I'm sure they were nice, but... And then, of course, everything tends towards stasis. That's a physical law. And I would say, really, it's part of our mandate as religious liberals and as human beings to celebrate the process of being under construction, to get on a fundamental level that things are never final. There's no final pair of shoes. Thinking something's forever is comfortable and comforting, And even more, for me anyway, is the comfort of thinking that we're done with it, you know, that we checked it off, the love box, done with reinvention, that now that things are finally set, we can get on with our lives. We were just waiting to be able to check those boxes off anyway, put them in their containers, and add the label with the label maker. It gives us a sense of control, I think, as though everything can't be turned upside down at any moment anyway. And I have to tell you, I am really glad that I will never have to buy another watch. This one, obviously, will last another 60 years, right? Right? Right. Good. But I do try to recognize that life is not a watch. Life is a craft room. And I'm still coming around to the idea that my craft room may never be perfectly labeled finally organized, absolutely complete. It's hard. 
It's hard, but I think it may be true anyway. And neither will my life. Even my final watch isn't going to keep my life from changing. In fact, creativity itself, which is, I think, in some ways, the positive way that we talk about change and disorder, creativity, you know, it's messy. It doesn't fit well into plastic boxes with labels, and it's rarely complete. So my wish for you, as you go into the membership meeting tonight, perhaps, with that welcoming congregation vote, with the Constitution vote, but more importantly, as you go into your own lives with shoe purchases and watch purchases and craft rooms, and possibly there are other things in your lives, I realize, (laughs) that as you go into your lives, you go knowing that nothing is ever quite finished, that we're always under construction and that it's definitely worth the mess.